Steve Wang has had a legendary career as a practical makeup effects artist. He was one of the main designers of The Predator. He built the Gill Man suit in The Monster Squad, and he had a major hand in the creatures of Gremlins 2, and that is just scratching the surface. But I don't think enough people know that he is an amazing director, having helmed one of the best live-action anime adaptations with Guyver Dark Hero, and, in my opinion, has directed the greatest action film to come out of North America in the 90s, which is the Mark Dacascos starring Drive. I'd even go as far to say that it is one of the ultimate examples of Hong Kong-style action cinema, realized by people who understand how it works and want to do the best version of it possible. I reached out to Steve and asked him if I could interview him about his directorial career, and he was nice enough to take some time out of his day to answer my questions. So I hope you enjoy our following discussion. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start all the way at the beginning, because I've read interviews that you said you weren't really interested in filmmaking until you were about 18 years old. Do you recall what event actually made you go, oh, you know what? I want to be a director. Uh, my friend Matt Rose and Don Allen uh, in, the, in the Bay Area, and they were making movies, little short films and whatnot. And then uh, one of my friends, my good friend Johnny Psycho, they, he asked me, hey, can you come and help? You know, with just, I need something to hold reflectors and whatnot. So 7 a.m. in the morning, we're driving up to Stevenson Ranch, and it's raining and it's cold, and I'm out there holding reflectors and i'm just going god this is miserable who the heck would want to make movies <laughs> you know not knowing that a year later that i would uh, be making a short film of my own so it cut to like you know a year later and johnny was always talking about oh you know i wanted to make movies and make movies and i thought you know you know hey you know, i got another idea like why don't we make a movie called kung fu rascals and i wanted to like you know try to direct this thing and so it took about six months and just organizing friends on weekends. And it was just a, a complete nightmare. Like just, it was no fun organizing it. Nobody shows up. You know, it's like all the, the worst problems, like worse than putting a band together. Right. And so finally, after six months, we finally made the film, edited the film. And then we did put the sound on it on VHS, like directly live, you know, recording sound or whatnot. And then I was realized I was bit by the bug after I watched it. I was like, wow, look at this. Look, look at what we made, you know. And that was Kung Fu Rascals Monster Beach Party, right? Yes, Monster Beach Party. Yeah. I noticed when I was watching Guyver 2, there was a clip on the TV and I'm like, that looks like Kung Fu Rascals, but I don't recognize that scene. Yeah, that was the Monster Beach Party. It was a 30 minute epic. <laughs> <laughs> after that, you're working working, you're doing special effects. When did you decide like, oh, I want to continue with Kung Fu Rascals? And I know it was an epic because you shot it on Super 8 as well in like a letterbox format. I moved to LA right after that, Matt, Matt Rose and I, and, and we were roommates. And we started working in the business. About a year later, we met this guy named Jim Towler. And Jim ultimately ended up going to work for Bob Skotek, who won the Academy Award for Aliens. And he kind of like tutored under him to make miniatures and whatnot and all that stuff. And Jim already had made a bunch of Super 8 films and his films were amazing. I mean, he did like kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff. He built sets, you know, he had like fire and like going underwater and he just did some really great stuff, just visually really dynamic. And so we teamed up together and said, hey, why don't we do a film? And we came up with a film called uh, Oni, The Legend of Demon Fire. It was kind of a serious short film, you know, where I played the, the this, this kind of samurai guy who comes home and finds his wife was murdered by these demons. I put the war paint on a ninja outfit and I run out to the forest to fight these guys. And in fact, in the final version of Kung Fu Rascals in the beginning, if you notice, there's a scene where I have this ponytail and makeup and I'm killing these demons. 
that's actual footage from that film because we because we never finished it. oh i was wondering too like when was the decision made of oh i will star in this film or co-star because you're in it and you do tons of martial arts too yeah you know that wasn't by choice because you know i'm by no means an actor and no nor do i ever want to be an actor nor am i any good at it the way that that played out was before i made the actual proper kung fu rascal feature there was a japanese company that approached me and they made like like 30 minute short films and put it out on vhs in japan make a short film and and we will um you know pay you like 20 grand to to make this film whatever you want to make and so i said okay great so i thought well i'll make a trailer for like kung fu rascals or something you know from there i, I ended up like adapting into a short film and then started shooting it and i thought well you know crap i already was in the sh- trailer don't so have to continue it so we wrote a simple script and started shooting it and then halfway through this company shut down and i thought oh man they haven't paid me anything yet you know and i've already pumped all this my own money into it so at that point i was like okay you know i got to finish this we did actually expand the script we just at that point decided okay we're going to keep the script but i'm just going to ad lib all the stuff in between and turn it into a feature so everything that's in the film it was like a 30 minute script like stretched out into a 90 minute film (laughs) (laughs) okay the structure of it makes a little bit more sense now that there's so many different sources yeah it was like a super long you know half hour episode or something that didn't get to finish (laughs) so kung fu rascals like you mentioned, it was kind of thrown together from like a bunch of different projects. And was there ever a time where you're like, all right, this is too hard. We're not going to get to the end of this, especially that you were shooting in Super 8. What was your idea of distribution? Um, well, I had met this guy named Phil Vigent from a company called Super 8 Sound, which was located in Burbank. I think they're still there. Yeah, I think they're like pro Super 8 now and you can still buy cameras. And Phil was very supportive. You know, he's a huge champion for Super 8. And so when I met him at like a, a Super 8 gathering, you know, like because I heard all these rumors about oh there's a movie called polish vampire in burbank that was made in super a and it got distribution and he, the guy made millions of dollars which i heard was kind of exaggerated you know <laughs> and you know and they were saying about you know all these super a films are like doing great and it's like you can make movies out of them so at the time when i was shooting kung fu rascals i had cut together a little three minute music montage with the footage and so everybody was there talking about super a and they were showing their stuff and so i had, i was in the audience i said hey can i show you my thing you know because I'm, I'm making a film too and i'm there's a lot i don't know so i popped this thing in and i showed it to phil and afterwards phil's like can i talk to you on the side and I say, yeah, what's up? He says, like, holy shit. I've never seen anything like this before. And I thought, what are you talking about? Look at all these video titles you have on here. All these boxes, you know, they look so nice, VHS boxes. He says, that's all crap. <laughs> he goes, Yours, your thing looked like a real movie. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know. You know, I said, I've been coming here for months. You know, I've, I spent like $2,500 on editing tape for the, the splicer, you know? And so at that point I kind of discover, oh, maybe it was a little bit exaggerated, but ultimately I knew that I was going to master it onto like one inch videotape. Then I was going to end up selling it to some company that'll put it on VHS and stuff like that. I have an issue of film threat where it goes like beat by beat through the making of the film. And it's like, great. And you're like, we did it in CinemaScope. This is how we did all the effects in the picture as well. At that point, were you looking for a distributor? Because I feel like film threat did do a VHS copy, right? They did at first. Uh, they ended up putting it out. And then Tanya York from uh, York Pictures approached me and said, hey, you know, I, I saw your trailer and I want to put it out. 
And I said, well, you haven't seen the film yet. She says, well, I don't care. I want to buy it. So I was like, okay. So I sold the US rights to her. And then the, the Japan rights, I sold it to Japan. And I actually made some money. It was crazy. And I was able to come back and pay some of the people that helped me. And so like, what were your main inspirations when you were making the movie? Because you look at it now and you recognize all the tropes when it comes to like Hong Kong, martial arts cinema. But around that time, nobody was doing it on the level that you were. Was it like difficult to communicate to your cast and crew of like the feel and style? that you were going for in the film? No, not really, because everybody was a, a big Kung Fu fan. Like Les Claypool plays the sheriff. He's a madman. I mean, when I first met him, I was actually helping him on his Super 8 Kung Fu movie. And I play like thug number two, you know, and we get into a fight in a dojo. Uh, and what was crazy about him is that when we talk, he doesn't speak like normal human beings. Whenever I talk to him, he's like, huh, so how you doing then? Hmm? Right. It's like, that's just how he talks all the time. He already talks dubbed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we communicate. It was always, hmm, ah, hmm, yes, hmm, right. Everybody was a big Kung Fu fan. You look in that movie and you have like Impact Powder. You have like the Big Falls. You're doing like all the Hong Kong stuff before it was cool in North America. Yeah, that's the story of my life, actually. When I tried really hard pushing Hong Kong cinema and, you know, I made Kung Fu Rascals, made Guyver 2, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately made Drive. And then none of those films did anything for me. But then everybody, they were in the studio system, saw them and were like, oh, we can make Hong Kong movies too. So all the professionals right all came in and made their Charlie's Angels and Matrix and like you know they all made the big movies and I kind of got left behind a little bit but I'm like hey you know what it's cool I'm a big fan and, and it became you know they became aware of Hong Kong cinema. I was listening to the commentary years ago of Hell Comes to Frogtown which you did the special effects on and it feels like half that commentary is Donald G. Jackson talking about all the stuff that you wanted to do in that film that was Hong Kong inspired do you remember even at that point you were like trying to sell it to productions that you were working on of, like this is the style that you want to bring to it. Well, how comes to Frogtown? Yeah, he was saying that like he wanted like a guy with like a bunch of arms and there was going to be like martial arts duels and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, man, I refreshed my memory. That was so long ago. Yeah, Don was a huge fan of Hong Kong cinema. In fact, I used to take him to Chinatown with me. And I think the big one that really changed his life was when I took him to see that Samuel Hung movie um, where they go back to, they go to Vietnam. Eastern Condors. Yeah, Eastern Condors. I took him to go see Eastern Condors and he lost his mind. I mean, you watch Hell Comes to Frogtown and you feel no Hong Kong influence on it. Yeah, no, I'll tell you, that movie was ridiculous. I mean, first of all, it, they took the film away from Don. Mm. So it was kind of unfair. You know, he got relegated to being a second unit director and they brought in another guy to do the main unit stuff. And what was really ridiculous about that movie was I'm sitting in the production meetings. We're going through the script. They're like, okay, then there's this scene and then, oh, this is an action scene. Well, that's easy. And they just move on. Oof. And I'm going, what? What are you talking about? How is the action easy? And then they'll say, okay, and this scene here, all right, so Sam Hell comes in and he sees these frogs and he shoots them. And they're like, okay, how many shots does he shoot? Uh, how much is a bullet? 50 cents a piece. Okay, uh, two shots. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? What are you? Okay, I give up. I quit. This is going to suck. And of course it sucks. Because you also worked on Rollerblade Warriors Taken by Force as a second unit director. Yeah. Was it like the same situation as well where they're like... No, that was actually a Don Jackson production. Like a proper Don Jackson. Which is, means like there's no money. <laughs> yeah. Zen filmmaking as became his style. Exactly. No, this is like years before Zen filmmaking. And so, yeah. So Don called me up and says, hey, you know, I'm doing this film and I, I want to do a scene, a fight scene. Can you come and do something? So he gave me a cameraman and and then some actors and my friend Johnny, who was also in Kung Fu Rascals, was in the scene. So I went there and I choreographed and I shot and I edited this thing for him. And I thought it turned out pretty cool. And then the main editor of the film, like, recut it. Uh, what? 
And then it made no sense. And then Don says, hey, you want to come look at this? You know, such and such, we cut it. And I sat there and looked at it. I was like, what the heck is this? This doesn't make any sense. I said, I shot this thing like montage cutting in Hong Kong. Like everything just flows mm-hmm. into each other. And then he says, well, do you want to fix it? And I said, why do I want, I do want to fix it? I just, I did this for free. I got a parking ticket coming here to edit. Now this guy is threatened and he wants to recut it. I was like, Ugh. That is the frustration of anyone trying to do like good action is like someone down the post line changes it to give their job value and you're like what are you doing it was already done yeah exactly this happened to me so many times in the past that i've I edited stuff for people my own stuff even and they would have they feel the need to recut it and they just do these just i don't know they, it just doesn't make any sense you know even around that time i've heard you in interviews say like you were trying to bring that hong kong flavor or even like your particular filmmaking style to even something like arena where one of the uh monsters that he fights was supposed to be like drunken master inspired <laughs> what happens in the movie yeah arena was fun it was unfortunate that there wasn't a whole lot of time but i got to rehearse it with uh, paul satterfield scream at george and i kind of choreographed this fight he storyboarded it out it was pretty cool we got on set and Unfortunately, we got into a huge fight with the director because the director came from this kind of a boxing sort of background, you know, so he had this Italian stunt coordinator choreograph the fight. And it was all just like, you do one swing and I duck and I do one swing and you duck. And George and I was like, well, this creature, he's got 13 foot long legs. It's got to be more interesting. So we came up with this whole like Wing Chun style fighting with him when he's like hand to hand. And then the other times he's he rises up on a crane and he's really tall. And, you know, George did a really cool job storyboarding this whole thing. And then the director's like, I'm not doing that. And then the producers like got into a fight with us and him saying you gotta let the kids do it you know this is good stuff you know just let them shoot it you know some of the best directors let the second unit do the fight you know so begrudgingly he let us do it and unfortunately we only had like half a day or something so we only we only got like 20 percent of what we wanted to do but you know it's in the film i feel like anytime i read about the early part of your career it's often people or you saying i was trying to do this and then you know we read ran right into a brick wall yeah it happened a lot still happens because like you directed guyver that's your first other than kung fu rascals co-directing credit with screaming mad george and you were brought onto that production so how was that experience like working in a studio system now as a director what were the challenges you felt and did you feel that you achieved the vision that you were going for uh no <laughs> unfortunately I, I don't i'm not even sure guyver is on my resume oh really so that whole thing was just not a great experience screaming mad george and i are really good friends and we still are really great friends and george was offered to make the film and he asked me if i wanted to direct second unit and i was just finishing off on kung fu rascals shooting the last of kung fu rascals and so i said to him i said well i really i'm really trying to become a main a main director so i don't really want to do second unit so he, then he asked me if you want to co-direct and i thought okay you know I'll, I'll try it not knowing that usually when you co-direct with somebody it would be a nightmare but not with George. George, we got along famously and we collaborated really well. The big problem I had was, you know, George and I had the, the very, I wouldn't say similar vision because George's ideas are very surreal and his things a little bit more towards the dark and weird. And mine is a little bit more towards the action, you know? And then what happened was that we had at least agreed like, okay, this is going to be like the vision for the show. And then Ninja Turtles came out and fucked everything up. No! At that point, the producers are like, Ninja Turtles, it's it's a big hit. Let's turn this into a comedy. And I was like, what? You can't turn Guyver into a comedy. This is it's not a comedy. Of course, we had to do it. So at that point, I was like, well, I got to do my job. We turned it into a comedy. And, you know, I, I will forever apologize for that decision. You know what? The creature suits look great in Guyver. Yeah. So that's yeah. always good. It was an experience. I mean, I, I did not have a good time. You know, I had a lot of problems uh, on that show, not with George, but with production. It's mostly the production being like, no, don't do it this way. Do it this way. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on like the action, because it's not anywhere near what it is in Guyver 2 when you were like let loose. 
we needed somebody that was more experienced with action. Like, you know, on Kyber 2, I was actually approached by Koichi Sakamoto and his Alpha Stunt team. He had just gotten to the U.S. not too long before that and worked on a bunch of low-budget films. And so he came in, you know, he had heard I was doing part two. So he called me up and said, hey, can I come in and pitch you my team? So he came and watched his reel and we really, we came from the same background. Like, we love Hong Kong action. Like, I loved Ultraman and Kamen Rider and, you know, so we spoke the same language. And so we wanted to do something really cool and unique and different. And so when it came to doing Guyver 2, we collaborated really well. And the producers just let you do whatever you wanted, right? I heard you in an interview say that they approached Screaming Mad George to do Guyver 2. And he was like, no, thank you. Yeah, here, Steve can do it. And then they were like, you know what? As long as there's one monster in it and it's under a million dollars, I think was the budget that you said. Originally, it was about 850000 Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so, you know, so they, they actually, they, they just said, we want one monster, one cute girl. <laughs> that's it. That's all they want. That's all, that's all they care about. And look what I made with it. You know, we had this giant cave excavation and, you know, uh, it just became a little mini epic. I mean, the difference between the first one, which is all urban, and then the kind of, you know, forest set of Guyver 2, it gives it like a completely different feel as well that may have been dictated by the budget, but I think it works great. Yeah, it was all it was all the budget. But, you know, after reading the comics and, you know, that part of it really fascinated me about the whole mythology of Guyver and where it comes from. And, you know, and it seems like a, a very old concept, you know, of like aliens created us. And that's always been a fascinating topic for me. So getting a chance to explore that. I'll tell you a funny story about that. When I was in the middle of making Guyver 2, one afternoon I came home, we, we had wrapped early and I came home and I was, I was having an early dinner and my wife was watching a movie and she says honey you gotta come look at this movie well come watch this movie with me it's really cool and it's the crater mass film crater mass experiment yeah and i'm watching it i'm like wait that scene is in the in guyver 2 hey that scene is in guyver 2 <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, that's in I'm like, holy shit, I'm remaking this movie and I don't even I don't even know what this movie is. Uh, I was inspired by it. <laughs> it just shows my cinephile uh, bona fides. And I just like I had no idea that there were so many similarities. Like, the, you know, the excavation, the alien artifacts, the mind meld, and like all the stuff. And I just thought, wow, okay, well, I guess I'm reinventing the wheel. I hope nobody catches it. I mean, speaking of inspirations, just watching Guyver 2, I remember renting it on VHS many years ago, and I was like, wow, the people who made this had just seen Once Upon a Time in China because there's a few moves stolen from it, like the no shadow kick that Guyver does. Yeah, no, totally. Koichi and his team, they're huge Hong Kong action fans. It's really not a ripoff. It's more of a tribute to that because it's only a ripoff when somebody copies you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and nobody was doing it in North America either. So we're the first to pay, pay tribute. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I can't even imagine like that much wire work. I guess it was all on Koichi's team and they knew how to do it at that point? Or is it like a learning process, especially with, you know, the technical team? They knew how to do it, you know, and, and I camera operated and, and edited it and shot all the stuff and directed the stuff. You know, that was one thing that was cool about Koichi and I. We're on the same page. They do the stunts and I shoot it. So it sounds like Guyver Dark Hero was... Pleasant in the sense that you had control over the product when it came out at the end of it. Did that lead to any other job offers or anything like that? Yeah. Well, I was in the middle of it. I ended up getting a manager and an agent and they ended up getting me the job to direct the first Power Rangers movie that I ended up quitting on uh, three months later. Uh, incidentally, my agent at the time uh, became the president of production at Warner Brothers. He greenlit all the Nolan films. And wow. yeah, he's like a big time guy now. You mentioned Power Rangers, and I assume it just came down to them being like, no, just do it cheaper. This is for kids. Who cares? Why are you trying to do something good? Yeah, no, the Power Ranger movie was interesting because they had all these more qualified directors, you know, bigger name directors. And they ended up hiring me because of Skyber 2, because they said, oh, I think this kid gets it, you know. And then 
then once I got there, they wouldn't let me do anything. They would have script meetings without me, and they would. I'm sitting there going, "What am I doing here?" And uh, and then we're falling behind schedule. And I had there was a producer that I guess was trying to get me fired, and and you know, and and wanted to bring her own director in, and it was just messy. I got I got a really horrible taste of Hollywood, and everything I told them, they wouldn't listen. And then of course it all came true. So it got to the point where I just finally just told me, you know what, I'm I'm done with this. I I can't. I can't be expected to direct a film. What I didn't know from a later experience was that I should have stuck with it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because what I would have done now that I'm more experienced with the system, I would have just said, yeah, 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 great. Okay, awesome, whatever. Go on set and do whatever the fuck I wanted and they couldn't do a damn thing. Right. Because I would just produce some great footage and then they would just go, okay, let them go. And like you said, you just shoot for the edit, any fight scenes or even really any scene. And it's like, that's all you got. They wouldn't even let me shoot the fight scenes. Really? Yeah. They said, no, you don't know. You're not going to do that. That's second unit. And they, I think they hired Jeff Imada, who's a friend of mine, but I didn't know Jeff back then, but I, I know Jeff now. And so they hired Jeff to to do all the second unit. And so I guess traditionally in, in, in Hollywood, I guess the action stuff is done by second unit. But what they were not used to was a director that wanted to also shoot that stuff because that's all part of what i do you know? yeah like you approach these projects like as a whole yeah you're a camera operator you edit it i mean you do the special effects you even work on action choreography and they just don't understand that they're like huh what second unit has always been like oh give me like an insert shot of this and mm-hmm. you know pick up this thing here that i missed or whatever it was never like go shoot an entire action sequence i mean that's mm-hmm. all for me main unit that's the bread and butter of the movie mm-hmm. the good stuff yeah. why would you want to end that to someone yeah. else and i always shoot that myself and i edit it myself after power rangers were you looking for more projects or did you just kind of like go back to doing special effects and uh, sculpting stuff no as soon as i quit on power rangers then i got a call from trimark and uh, this guy named phil goldfine who i think he might still be the head producer for steven seagal he was always championing for me wanting to work with me and stuff like that so at trimark he hired me right away to direct another film so i read the script and i went to meet the producer on the show spent a couple hours with him talking about the project and at the end of it i went to phil and I said phil i can't do this film <laughs> oh man and he's like why not i said i don't want to spend the next eight months of my life arguing with this producer i mean he and i have a completely different vision for films i don't see this working out so i just uh, so i declined and then i think a couple years later i talked to mark amin who was the head of trimark because mark was also a fan too and mark, he brought me in to meet about a ninja turtles movie he gave me a couple of ninja turtle scripts and one of them was terrible and then one of them was great i thought it was a great script and i said let, let me i want to do this one but then i also knew kevin eastman and i called kevin up and i said hey kevin i'm talking to trimark about this thing and he says oh don't do it we're in the middle of some problems and the rights are gonna it's coming up and it's not gonna get renewed and you're just gonna get heartbroken and so i'm like all right i'm staying out of it and so that didn't happen and this is like so hollywood people ask me well how come you haven't made a film after all these years it wasn't like i wasn't trying it was just that you get so many instances of of getting on a project and you you go with it you develop it you spend all this time with it and then last second it falls apart and this happened to me on, on a steven seagal film i spent a year writing a film with steven seagal and it was halfway funded we went to afm we had a party for it an announcement and literally i think two weeks before we started pre-production the whole thing fell apart and you can read about all about it in that vanity fair issue that came out about what happened with steven and his partners you know and nothing to do with the film itself but just like the whole you can just see how the, the in Hollywood, like it's so complicated, all the stuff that happens between productions and people and the relationships and whatnot. So you were writing that script with Steven Seagal, collaborating on it? It was myself, Scott Phillips, and Steven. Well, Steven's story, we were writing it with him, you know, and with me attached as director. And I thought it was a pretty decent script. I mean, I, I really got excited about it. There was a few things that were a little heavy-handed. You know, he wanted to talk a little bit about the his distaste for the American Medical Association. There's like, you know, a three-page... <laughs> 
soliloquy in court, you know? Yeah, like on Deadly Ground, where he just monologues at the end. Yeah, of it. you know, there's a few scenes like that, which I know ultimately at the end, you have to end up cutting it because it's going to be too long. But at the heart of it, you know, I felt it was really a good story and it was really heartfelt. I've really kind of regretted that that whole thing fell apart because I really felt like I had a chance to really sort of re create Steven Seagal in another I would have been fascinated to see that because he tried like he was in a movie called Belly of the Beast I don't know if you've ever seen it but that was directed by Chin Su Tung who did a Chinese ghost story really and it is as odd as you think like him doing wire work him doing that kind of action that's very expressionist oh wait I saw some scenes of that on YouTube that's what that was I thought yeah Steven Seagal doing wire work was strange well I never would have had him do wire work oh man your version of a Steven Seagal movie uh, I wish it could have existed but like you said Hollywood just chews that stuff up and spits it out. Remember, um, what's that Christian Bale movie where they're using gun food? Equilibrium. Yeah. My script had that years before gun food. And, and mine was actually not with a nine millimeter, but with full auto machine guns. Ah, I would have loved to see that. <laughs> yeah. I had a scene like that in it uh, that I was really excited. I was like, oh, this is new. This is cool. I'm going to do something really cool with it. I, yeah, I had a bunch of really cool action ideas in the script. You know, there's a, there's a huge battle on, on a yacht. You know, there's a fight in a bar with spinning bottles. And... Oh, you're just teasing me at this point. I'm just imagining it in my <laughs> when it comes to the movie Drive, I have to say that like I discovered this movie back when I was a teenager. I was on some forums, probably Kung Fu Cult Cinema, and it caught my attention because someone was like, this beat Drunken Master 2 at the Fantasia Film Festival. And I was like, wait, what? Drive beat Drunken Master 2? It's a film that's better than Drunken Master 2? And I remember ordering the Hong Kong Legends disc that had your director's cut on it, sitting down and watching it, and it just like blowing my mind. I'm like, this is Hong Kong action pretty much as good as it gets. Oh, thank you. And I can't imagine the process of putting that together because that script was given to you, right? And it was completely different, written by Scott Phillips. Yeah, it was the same basic story, but what it was was the action was all like guys in cars and battles. And so, you know, it was, it was a $3 million budget, you know, actually it became 3.5 once we, we started making it. And I, I went to the uh, the finance series and I said, I can't make this movie like this for this kind of budget. It's too much. I say, can I just turn it into a martial arts film instead? And they said, well, go ahead. So I did draft two on my own and I rewrote all the action sequences to what you saw in the movie. And by rewrite, I mean, some of it was like- They fight. Yeah, yeah they fight. Here's the, the idea is a sock hop with this and with that. It's going to be awesome. And that's what I wrote. And they were just like, what the fuck? How can you just like <laughs> turn this in? That's, that's ballsy of you. And I'm like, yeah. And they said, great, we can't wait to see it. <laughs> And that was just like, and I'm blown away. I'm like, you know, the producers on that film, uh, Mike Leahy, he was an amazing producer. So supportive. The process of production, it sounds like it was pretty smooth and you were able to do what you wanted to up until a certain point. Because I've heard you tell stories that there was one producer who was trouble uh, on that film. Yeah, he wasn't an actual producer. He was the head of the, uh, the studio. He was a big... Uh, problem for me. The reason they allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do uh, was because that every day when I turned in dailies, they loved it. And so because they loved everything I was doing, they just gave me more and more freedom. The sad thing about that was that I remember I finished the movie the way I wanted to finish it. And it cut a couple of scenes out, which was in the deleted scenes because we had a compromise. So aside from that, I made the film the way I wanted to make it. It went to MIFED in Italy. Apparently, a bunch of things happened that I wasn't aware of until two years later. They had all kinds of offers. Miramax wanted to put it out theatrically but you know there was no like bankable stars at, at that time so they said we have to put a lot of money in getting people's butts in the seats once they're in the seats we know word of mouth will carry it because they tested super high like ours their scores we we tested were amazing 
but then the you know the guy he didn't have any faith in it he's like no i want my money now you know so maybe yeah i want money up front yeah so maybe it's because it's too long or maybe because he wanted to play filmmaker and put his own music on it (laughs) yeah can we get a chintzier score overdrive maybe people will like it more it's heartbreaking that he couldn't see that so after he came back they lied to me told me nobody wanted to buy it and then you know and all that kind of stuff which i found out two years later was completely untrue and uh and then the whole thing just became a a nightmare after that it's so frustrating because i know you probably looked at the film like this is great we've shown it to people it works i mean i'm gonna be honest when i show people like oh this is what i mean was hong kong action like especially the climax of the film which is all those beats like multi-person fights the villain and then the villain powers up and then he fights them again. <laughs> like, that's the perfect climax. It's like the video game ending. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it happens in Guyver 2 when he becomes like the, the you know, uh, broken Guyver and they fight. And I was very aware of that too. I'm like, people are like, how's it going? I said, good. I'm reshooting the ending of Guyver 2 right now. Oh, for Drive. <laughs> I mean, I watched that film and it's difficult for me to kind of like uh, fathom you doing it because I've been on sets and to get that level of action and precision, just like people flipping and landing and the camera moving and hitting that mark. Did you find that because you had Koichi working with you that you were in a rhythm or was it a learning curve? No, you know what? We had already done Guyver 2 and somehow when we worked on Guyver 2, everything just clicked. So by the time we did Drive, you know, none of that stuff was storyboarding. Really? Yeah, because I hadn't slept in like five and a half weeks. I literally slept one hour a day and was shooting around the clock, two units. And so whenever we get to the when the main unit wrap, second unit comes in, we start shooting the action for the next 10 hours, you know? And then it was just like, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about stuff. He'll be choreographing it, you know, like an hour or two before. And then we'll sit down and like, okay, block it out. Boom, boom. Okay, we'll shoot from here to here. I'll just pop the camera down and put the lens on and we just go. And then I camera operated all the stuff, you know, so I know exactly how I want it to move and whatever, you know, I'm, I'm very particular about footwork when it comes to martial arts. I don't want, when the guys land, they can't stumble. When they do, everything has to be very precise, you know? So when we do it, I make sure that they they do it, perform it a certain way, you know, and then we'll do some terrible, terrible falls and then it'll look amazing and Koichi would be like, one more, one more. <laughs> And his guys went through hell, but they're all professionals. You know, they, they were trained to to fall correctly. Still hurts, but they were trained to fall. Just those falls in that movie. Like, they're up there with, like, Sammo Hung-style falls, like, on beams, like, yeah. up against things. Yeah. Stuff that, like, the regular viewer is like, oh, that's cool. But, like, anyone who, you know, knows Hong Kong's like, oh, God, that's, like, the most painful one that you can do. Like, stair falls and stuff like that. One of the most painful falls in the film was not even in the film. Really? Which one was that? It was in the gravel pit scene. That we lost too much sunlight. So we shot it, but it was too dark to use. And it was the second level of that, that gravel pit uh, that thing yuji who's our, our resident fall guy he gets kicked over the railing he jumps he hit his back on uh, a eye beam and he literally falls i think it was like a good 18 feet <sighs> into a pile of sand some padding underneath it but it, it doesn't move and he's only like five two and that fall was was crazy and by the time he hit literally i never we got all scared because he was like Ugh! he froze and people were like don't touch him <laughs> we waited like 15, 20 seconds. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> A little thumbs up. Hey, your head's over here. Can we, should we craft that back on, you know? They were like Superman. I mean, they were amazing, you know? And, and I ended up working with them a lot over the years. I was going to say that, like, after Drive came out, Koichi kind of went his own way. He did a bunch of other, um, you know, micro-budget stuff, like uh, Broken Path and Extreme heist then he ended up in japan doing ultraman stuff <laughs> yeah he went back to his roots except now you know he's getting like the the real stuff mm-hmm. so I, I saw him a couple years ago when i was in japan and uh man he's he's nuts he's so busy 
I think he directed two feature films and something like eight episodes of a TV show in one year. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's just nuts. Yeah. It's like at one point he was directing two movies at once in one of the years he was there. Daytime, he's shooting this one movie. Nighttime, he's shooting another movie. Now, you mentioned that you were on the Power Rangers movie. You didn't direct any Power Rangers TV other than Power Rangers Lost Galaxy, right? That one episode that you yeah, did? Yeah, that episode. Yeah. Which, if people haven't seen it, is. A, a bottle episode that the Power Rangers are not even in. It's basically people in Starship Troopers costumes being hunted by an alien. It's amazing. It was weird how that came about because I was working next door to Saban on Bicentennial Man. I was sculpting these old age makeup. And then they asked me, hey, can you make some costumes for us? You know, we wanted you to do like Trakina's like, you know, alien suit and creature form. And so I said, okay, sure. So I started building that on the side. And then while I was doing that, uh, they approached me again and says, hey, you know, um, we're doing this episode. Like, it's like an alien-inspired episode, but the director uh, has to leave town, you know, for a family emergency. Would you mind, like, doing this? And I thought, yeah, sure, okay. So I came on to do that episode. And it, since we're, I'm right next door to, to my day job, uh, literally at lunchtime when people are having lunch, I run back next door and I continue sculpting. <laughs> On the Bicentennial Man. And then as soon as lunch is done, I'll run back next door and start directing again. And then that went on for like, you know, 11 days and we shot this episode and uh, it was a lot of fun. And they never like called you up afterwards and like, you want to direct some more episodes or it was just like a one-off? There were some problems that I heard. I can't say if this is completely true or not because I just don't know. But I've heard from multiple sources working there that a certain person that works there that's in charge that considers himself the best director of the bunch got very jealous of my episodes everybody says oh it's the best thing ever come out of power rangers and... oh no you did too good again where they're like get them out of there you know i don't want to say these things because it, it sounds like i'm boasting and it just sounds kind of stupid but i've seen your movies uh, like i said i show people drive i'm like this is as best, good as it gets even now <laughs> like this is what we're aiming for thank you yeah but then that happened and the certain person in charge got very jealous of that mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why i never got called back and the other one was that this one i know for sure did happen was that uh the producer complained that i had spent too much money on the episode but this was after i went to the first meeting and he introduced me to the crew and says oh this is Steve, he let him do whatever he wants. I think I heard something like they had like six steady cam day for the entire season, and I used up four on my episode. Just like I didn't know that. But he said you could do whatever you wanted. All the stuff we we're doing, I needed a steady cam. And at some point they say, Oh, well, you just saw the steady cam you have. I'm like, great. I grabbed the camera and I'll just do a handheld. You know, I started shooting it. Crew was great. The actors were awesome. Everybody was so fun to work with. You know, I had a great experience on that. And uh, and I thought the episode came out really fun. You know? Oh, yeah, it's super fun. I remember when I was looking at your filmography, I'm like, what is this? And my friend was like, it's crazy. That's nothing to do. The Power Rangers literally just show up at the end. They're like, we're here to save you. That's it. I read the script. and I was, Originally, it was going to be like two episodes, but there wasn't enough material. And then as I was reading it, I, I started changing stuff. Like, I don't think this works. I don't think that works. And the only thing I couldn't change was that very ending where they open up the cockpit of the spaceship and the yellow each other come on jump and jump and i'm like yeah. no when this door opened they'll be like oh yeah they're in space what's going on yeah and they said to me you know don't worry about it it's a kid show kids don't know any better and i'm like ah, i think kids are smarter than that and of course when i show my son the episode the day that it aired my son was only like i think four years old or something and you know what he said to me when that scene came up he says daddy people can't breathe in space <laughs> that's what my four-year-old said to me yeah. and i said I know, son. I know. <laughs> a tear, one lone tear comes out of the, my eye. <laughs>
Your dad lost this one. So looking at your IMDb as far as like projects that got off the ground, I remember for a long time I saw there was Sirens of the Deep. And I'm like, what is that? And it was only in the last year that I found the pitch reel that you guys shot for it. Is that as far as it went? Just the pitch reel? Yeah, how did you find that? It was just online. Someone had posted it. and uh, Really? Uh, what a delight that was. I don't think I have a copy of that. You know what? I'll send you a link. So how did that come about? Because it looks like a very Buffy the Vampire Slayer style show. I had partnered up with... Uh, two ex-Power Ranger writer-producers, uh, Doug Sloan and Ann Knapp. And uh, they had an idea to do like a Mermaid action show. So I was like, okay, so we well, we collaborated together and came up with Sirens of the Deep. You know, it was like by day they were like Josie and the Pussycats. By night they were actually mermaids that are out solving crimes and trying to keep the sea lord from taking over the world. And we had some cool ideas. You know, I don't think they came across in the trailer, but the idea for the show was that they travel around in the van, but the, the van was like the TARDIS, you know, with all the dimensional engineering. Oh, so it's like giant inside. You're in this under underwater lab that's, you know, and I had designed this really cool laboratory where there was like dry area where the, the scientists would go to. And then there's all these tubes with computer terminals that the mermaids would swim in so they can interact with each other, like dry land and sea and at the same time. And just a lot of fun stuff. And we actually got this group called the Wild Orchid to be in it. And one of the members of Wild Orchid was Fergie. First she was Fergie. We pitched it to Film Roman and they liked it. So they gave us a little bit of money to like, you know, for a few days to shoot a little promo reel. It wasn't a lot of money. We couldn't really do that much with it. I mean, you throw in those painful Hong Kong stunts in it anyway. There's like big falls of stuntmen like crashing into stuff. Yeah, yeah. We actually, there was a lot more we didn't use because uh, they had hired an editor to come in and edit the reel. Oh no, again? Yeah, I was not allowed in the editing room. So it was just like, okay, whatever. I shot a complete fight and they, they only used like maybe 20% of the, of the scene. So I don't know what the rest of the footage ended up. There was some really painful stuff. Yeah, And that's something that just went out and they were like ah, no thanks and you just moved on from there yeah they shopped it around i don't know what happened to it after that yeah you just reminded me there was a lot of action i shot in that i don't even i did, completely forgot there was action in so it. one thing that i have to ask you about and i remember i was listening to the commentary on the dvd and the director was like oh yeah steve wang shot this and i was like wait wait wait, what and at the time it wasn't on imdb and that was kung pao enter the fist the action scenes in it. oh yeah How did that come about it was from koichi actually um again i was i was still working next door to saban on a another film and uh koichi was hired to second unit direct the action in kung pao hmm. and then kung pao got shut down by the union on the first day and then they ended up moving to mexico so there was a delay for that so when it came back on again oh koichi asked me oh i only trust one guy to camera operate this stuff it was me he wanted me to, to shoot this stuff so i said sure I'll, I'll, I'll come down wherever and I'll, I'll shoot it for you you know and uh but then the whole thing got pushed and then koichi ended up not being able to do it but he said well i still want you to go down there and at least camera operate it so then i went to mexico for like a week and uh i met with the stunt coordinator there and and i said well, so what do you want to do? And he was like, he wasn't quite sure about what he wanted to do with anything at all. He wasn't intending on directing any of the stuff. He was just going to coordinate. And so at that point, I was like, oh, shit, you know? So I said, do you want me to just shoot it for you? He's like, yeah, yeah. You know, so then I got together with the, the stunt guys and we talked about some bunch of ideas and wire rigging. And turned out that uh, Chad Stahulski who did the John Wick films. He was one of the guys rigging wire. <laughs> really? Wow. Marcus Young now is a big time, you know, stunt coordinator. He was one of the guys. And in for it. people who are wondering, that's like the opening scene. There's like a fight scene. They did use a bit of it. It wasn't all the stuff I shot. There was actually a lot more. And what I really loved was that it was 
experimental for me because it is a kung fu chop sake movie and one thing i wanted to do was like okay i want to do not just my regular style camera work i want to do incorporate the zooms into the fight so i was zooming with the choreography in and out and doing all the stuff so the camera itself was part of the choreography and they got nuts the dailies came back and i thought it worked out really well and i remember the day before i shot uh, the DP, his name is John Connor. He says uh, to me, he says, oh, um, just so you know, he's very kind of a mild manner gentleman. And he says, oh, you know, you know, you've seen Hong Kong movies, right? Where they got like the, the zooms and the stuff like that. And I go, yes, sir. He goes, yeah, maybe you can incorporate some of that stuff into the scene. I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> and then we came in the next day, they shot their dailies. And it was all just, kind of, you know, him out in the plane with the CG a uh, cow, but a cow wasn't there yet. So it was all very kind of static and stuff they were doing. My footage came in. It was like, guys flying in. All the stuff. Wireworks, people being kicked. Yeah, it was nuts. And, and he, afterwards, he came up to me and he kind of like put his hand, hands on my shoulder and he was kind of speechless. He just says, great job. I remember when I watched the movie, I'm like, whoa, the action is kind of fun in this begin at beginning part. Yeah, there was so much more because I couldn't shoot with Steve Utterkirk because he was doing main unit. So what I did was I used his stunt double and we shot like an entire sequence. And there were scenes was obviously not him. But I explained to Steve, I said, okay, well, when you come back and do pickups, this is kind of like a guide. You know, you can just see the action that was choreographed and whatever. And you can decide if you want to use this. If you do, insert yourself into it, you know, like cut to your over shoulder. You could do this, whatever. And I did an entire sequence. So it, it was cut into a montage because I don't think he had enough time to put himself into the fight scene. I'm curious to know, were there other like second unit things like that that you've done that like you haven't been credited for? Because like that's the only second unit director credit that you have. I didn't, I didn't even get credit as second unit director. Oh, I think someone added it. I remember when I heard it on the commentary, I checked on IMDb and you weren't there, but someone put it in recently because it's listed. Oh yeah, I know it's not in the film because it was a, there was a technicality. It was like they said that they would be happy to credit me if I would join the DGA. But it was like, at the end of the day, it was like $12,000, including taxes that I would have to pay on the money that they, they didn't pay me. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. And I was like, ah, not for one credit. I can't do it. So I didn't get credited for that. But I think I got credit for camera operator or something, which was fine. That was a fun experience. So one of the things like your last credits, as far as director goes, is Cayman Rider Dragon Knight, where you were also the showrunner. And that show is awesome. And I wish more people would talk about it because I went to go check it out. I'm like, oh, this is like the ultimate version of this show where the person making it genuinely likes this thing and wants to make it as crazy and serialized as possible. How did that come about? Um, that was from a friend of mine, uh, Aki Komine. I had worked with him on a couple of my feature films. He was like the executive producer. And, you know, he always knew about my love for Kamen Rider and Ultraman and the Sentai shows. Ironically, I had, I had a meeting with another producer about pitching a little horror film that I wanted to do. And Aki called me up the same day, said, hey, are you going to be in the area? I want to come talk to you about something. I'm like, okay. So the whole time I'm having this meeting, like it was an outdoor kind of a dining area, you know, at this place. I see Aki like walking peripherally in the distance. And I'm like, this is really surreal. <laughs> I'm meeting with one producer and he's walking around. <laughs> and so finally... I finished that meeting and he came up to me and he says, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I'm trying to get the rights to Common Rider. And if I get it, do you want to do it? And I'm like, I'm 100% in, you know, if you want to do it. And so he came back two weeks later and says, we got the rights, you know, and I, and I got a financier. So let's make the show. We got convinced him first though. Mm -hmm. And then so while I was working on Alien versus Predator Requiem during the daytime and working on another side project, I was also writing the pre-show pilot. Uh, you know, I, I reviewed some of the footage that we had to work with from uh, Kamen Rider Ryuki. And afterwards, kind of, okay, we'll put together just kind of a 20, 
20 minute reel. Then we had, uh, I think it was like three or four days to go out there and shoot all the American side footage to work into the effects footage. I put it together in my in my house, you know, sent it to Japan and they said the official word I got was that they approved it. They said, okay, you guys show you can do it. So then we started, you know, writing the show. That was crazy. That was hell of an undertaking because it was 40 episodes. 40 episodes. When I saw it, I was like, and that's one season? And unless I'm mistaken, that's almost all original footage, right? There was a bit of Japanese footage, but we actually shot more American action footage than the Japanese footage that we, we used. And I got to give credit to Nathan Long. Nathan, Nathan Long, who wrote Gaiba 2 with me, he was the head writer and he's the one that organized and put together all the footage and notated everything and then tried to structure something that we can tell this epic story with like 13 characters. And we did it with very little time and, and no experience with a show like this. And that show, I was very surprised that it didn't always follow the structure that you expect from like uh, Takasatsu show where the serialized storytelling you didn't always follow like a set pass like okay the monster's introduced here he shows up they do their power move was that tough to pitch or even tough to organize in your own mind that you're kind of breaking that format no just never thought about it we really just let the story guide us you know i mean there was a few times you know at the end of every episode we either try to resolve a situation or we try to leave it in a, in a cliffhanger much as we can the i think the only structure i had to follow was Every fourth episode had to be an action episode. Mm. So that there had to be, you know, a lot of action in that episode. But then the price you pay was then there's three episodes in there that has to be reused footage episode, recall episode. <laughs> remember when this happened? It's like, yes, yes, I remember. Yeah, exactly. And that was the price we had to pay because of that. Because our budget, we had less than half the budget of Power Rangers. Oh my God. And Power Rangers, like all of the special effects footage is from Japan. Yeah, I think they shoot a lot too, because the first Power episode, Koichi came out and helped me out with that one. I saw on IMDb that like you directed a whole bunch of episodes. Yeah, I did 16 episodes on my own. I directed a bunch of action for from two to six or two to seven. I directed all the action in that. During that time, we finally got Yuji to come in, who was part of the Koichi's Alpha Sun team that we did Drive and Guyver 2 together. Then he came on full time as an action director so he had his own unit uh, at that point because i was wearing too many hats and i remember one day shooting this scene with the out on the pier with the motorcycles and i went to yuji says it's lunchtime i gotta go take a nap i feel like i'm actually going to die like i physically felt like i was going to die it was it was crazy i was gonna say you're not used to that because it sounds like that's what happened on guyver 2 and on drive as well yeah but this time was weird because they, he was with me on all those films you know, and this that one day was felt like I felt like I literally somebody was just going to turn the off the light switch and I was just going to fall over. And that was near the beginning of the whole production. We shot for 120 days uh, and with four different directors. Oh, my God. Well, I, mean, I was producing. I was editing. You know, I, I edited all the action in the show. I mixed the show myself with the mixer. You know, like like those, those are my jobs. You know, I have to go and take perform those duties. I directed all the visual effects. It was over 2,000 something shots that we did. Um, and then of course, there's the script reviews and the rewrites. And then I would have to have meetings with the AD. I have two rotating ADs. You know, while one unit is prepping, one is shooting. But we're just, we're constantly going, we get weekends off, you know, and we just go unit by unit. And then we do these shows in blocks, you know, like the, the smallest block was like two episode blocks. The, the largest block was the five episode blocks. So, you know, I ended up doing most of the three to five episode blocks myself because they were intense. And because I have so many things to do, a lot of times before I started my block, I had one day to prep. <laughs> one day? <laughs> like one day to prep for like a feature length film. And then you just fly by the seat of your pants, you know, and you only have this many days to shoot. And then uh, you just go, go, go. And uh, it's nuts. And that's the only thing I didn't like about TV production was that 
you have so little money, so little time to prep, and then you know your resources are limited, so you can only do so much. And like I asked Koichi, you know, Koichi did years of Power Rangers. I said, how do you deal with this? How do you go from like getting stale? Because you know, when I do a feature film, I really get immersed myself, and I think of what what kind of cool things can I do, and how can I present, you know, this and that. And the TV show, when you come up with a cool idea, it's spontaneous. You know, I I did that a lot. Like you know, oh, I have an idea to do this, and I try to make it happen you know, whatever, but you can only do it so much of that. And then a lot of times you just got to go through the motion, get the show, shoot it, shoot it, get it done and move on because we have, we only have this much time. And after a while you just go, yeah, I'm just, I don't know if I'm making anything good. You know, it's like, it's, I'm just, I'm just chasing the clock. Like you're making your days, but that's pretty much it at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. Watching the episodes, like, especially like that early block, like we can, I can feel you trying, doing stuff, playing things in long take, like a flashback is happening in the background. And I'm like, you don't usually see this on Power Rangers stuff. I was trying to add more style to it and whatever, but at a certain point, you know, when you get in the midst of it, because I was also dealing with a lot of politics, dealing with the networks, you know, I was dealing with, I mean, there's so much to deal with as a showrunner, let alone try to get in there and direct and, and make sure that when you have other directors directing that, you know, the producers leave them alone. Like I had to tell them to get off the set, you know, let them do their jobs because I've been harassed enough as a director. I, I go and protect my director. And so after that show ended, were you like season two? What's happening, guys? Yeah, we were hopeful, but that whole thing got botched because the toy production, we originally had a deal with Cartoon Network that was going to happen. And I interfaced with the guys there and, and you know, those guys were great and they really got it. Like I'm thinking this is going to be a great collaboration. And then something happened where we were told all of a sudden, oh, you, you're not going to go to Atlanta to meet with them. And I thought, well, why not? What's going on now? You know, and it turns out we lost the deal with them. And the reason we lost the deal was because somebody from Japan's side didn't want to be told what to do by Cartoon Network or something. I don't know. I don't, I can't tell you exactly what happened. All I know is that something happened on that side and we lost the deal and the toys are already going into production, but from Bandai, and then they had to stop because at that point we had no distributor again. So then they scramble and they got to deal with CW for kids. But then by the time that happened, they couldn't start the toys back up on time. So the show came out, I think in January or something, and then toys didn't come out till July. So, and the whole thing is that these are supposed to be toy commercials that became a huge problem. And it became the show kind of was, I wouldn't say a flop, but it didn't quite get the numbers because no one promoted it. You know, if you saw a commercial for it, you had to be on CW to see a commercial. You didn't see commercial on any other networks or whatever. So there was no promotion for it. And at that point, it just kind of like, okay, well, no one's going to get to see this. And I don't even think it's gotten like a proper DVD release in North America either. No. Nothing. Ah, so frustrating. It's not even streaming anywhere. It's so sad, you know. And and the sad thing was Koichi. When I saw him a couple years afterwards, uh, when it came out in Japan, first it, I guess it came out in paid cable, like two a.m. or something. People were like staying up and and they were watching it and they were paying for it. And then at some point it came on free TV. And then uh, Koichi told me, oh yeah, it was a it's it's a huge hit in Japan. Like people that watched the shows like that, they loved it. They thought it was amazing, you know. And they thought it was a nice fresh take on the the genre. And even the actors came out and said that they really love dubbing the show because they're all like Sentai act in Kamen Rider actors from the real shows coming back to dub my show. And they were just saying that they really love how there was so much thought and respect put into the, the, the material. The official word from Toei Studio was that they were really impressed with the show. And you're like, okay, yep, hire me for another season. I'm here to go. Yeah, no, we had talked about trying to, to adapt either Fize as the next show 
or continue Dragon Knight into next season with all new footage. We had an idea to continue the story for Dragon Knight. It would have been really cool, you know, even if we did that versus adapting another season. Uh, but we probably could have done both, adapt the season and then turn it into Dragon Knight, you know. I mean, anyone listening to this, even if you're not familiar with the show, you can just jump in. You don't need to know any of the previous seasons because it introduces it right from the get-go. And it has a pacing. I was thinking of like old school, like Marvel comics of the way that it plays out that I really enjoyed it, especially like the main characters and the way they're reacting to having to be heroes and stuff like that. Yeah. And Mark DeCast is in it as yeah, well yeah that was really fun I hadn't, I hadn't worked with mark in so long so i asked him to come hey you want you want to come in and you know be be like mr miyagi <laughs> he's like oh, i always wanted to be mr miyagi <laughs> i'm like great come back in you know and mark dacascos now you know he's in john wick three tons of netflix shows <laughs> he's all over the place doing martial arts stuff again and usually when people mention him as an action star they're like oh yeah drive watch that that's the one that you want to check out yeah mark worked, he worked his ass off on drive and he's come a long way now too uh you know as an actor he has such a presence he's also such a screen presence but now there's there's a wisdom too that comes with his with, with him now uh, as an actor and uh, and i think it really comes across on the screen really well speaking of mark i don't want to open any old wounds because now we get to the portion of like what projects did you not get to make but i always feel like there's a steve wang project that's just about to happen and you've had one with mark right or maybe even multiple ones yeah, i did i had a project it was a, a sequel to fist of the north star it was actually not really a sequel it was like a um proper reintroduction i mean for anyone who's seen the tony randall gary daniels version of fist of the north star i you know gary's heart is in the right place but how can you make a fist of the north star movie where nobody explodes that's wild yeah people explode in mine <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> that's what fist of the north star is uh, i had rewritten because the studio came back to me and said hey we want you to do fist of the north star like kind of reboot it and you know and, and we had just done drive so they wanted mark in it and i'm like well yeah mark would be a good choice you know but mine was a little more faithful to the comic in the sense of, you know, it's a story of the four brothers and how they sort of all kind of fell apart and went their own way, whatever. Uh, the story itself was original. It wasn't so much taken from the comic itself. It was one of those scripts that I thought the pacing was like the most perfect script that I had ever worked on. Um, Nathan Long and I wrote that together. And it was like literally every 10 minutes, there was like an amazing action sequence and like a badass intro. Uh, my heart just imagining this movie <laughs> it was one of those films where i got so excited about it i went to romania to scout locations with mike Leahy, who was going to produce it and then somehow i can't remember exactly what happened but it didn't happen you know and then they said well can you turn this into something that is maybe a little more doable because mine that was a, was a little bit more of an epic kind of a, kind of a film so then nathan long and i came up with uh, another version that was not uh, Fist of North Star per se, but heavily inspired by that was called Thunder Warrior. The same kind of character, same kind of abilities, but a totally original story. I love that one too. That was one of those films I was really sad that didn't happen. It was our main character, Mark Dacascos. He's chasing these two, these three robotic, like steampunky kind of robotic, but not modern, like very ornate steampunk uh, type robots that are like blood vampires uh, that basically suck people's bloods out with these machines and, and eat them. He chases them to this, uh, this mining facility, abandoned mining facility inhabited by freaks and mutants, like all people that society didn't want. And this is a kind of post-apocalyptic fantasy. It doesn't exist, right, kind of place. They were basically abandoned in this mother Coventry type She's there. She takes care of all the all the unwanted people there. This mining facility has multi levels, and the deeper that it goes, the more it becomes unknown. And cannibals live down there, and all the crazies live down there. There's this young girl that 
Mark's character is chasing to find, she was sort of taken or, or she was dropped off there years ago because she was rumored to have murdered her parents because she had this power to make people blow up and crazy things, you know, uh, and everybody's afraid of her. So he goes there to find her. And there's so many cool things that happen in this story and really heartfelt stuff too that had like how he connects with the girl and the way that they connected and 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 what ultimately at the end like they're really kind of the same person you know uh in in the in the sense that they have the same powers and really she he's coming to save her from becoming something that these these robotic guys become because ultimately they were children in these armor suits that were all corrupted and fucked up you know and it's like it was kind of deep too and there was a fucking zombie fight <laughs> finale where they fight 40 zombies that came out of the ground because these these guys made that made, resurrected these dead that came out. This still sounds fresh to me. It can still get made. Uh, I believe Fifth of the North Star just got republished in hardcover in North America like last month for the first time. Fifth of the North Star Fever, it's back. This, this was one that I really wanted to do. I wanted to do all these movies. I had a film too. This is interesting trivia. Um, Who's the producer of The Last Jedi? Oh, Ram Bergman? Yeah, Ram Bergman. My my manager, my my late manager, um, years ago, uh, Ram was making, you know, low-budget films and stuff. I had a script that Nathan Long and I wrote about a guy who goes to hell to save his wife. And Ram got a hold of it, and he loved it. He offered me $3 million to make this movie. He says, if you want it, if you can do it for $3 million, we start tomorrow. And I was like, ah, oh, I need at least five. I don't know how to do this. This is pre-CGI, pre, you know? And so I did, I literally didn't know how to do it for that kind of money. And I didn't want to ruin it. But again, that's another film that, you know, I would love to dig out someday. And... I mean, all you need is someone with uh, tons of financing to come knock at your door and say, Steve, here you go. No strings attached. Just give me the final product. See ya. I just need an oil tycoon. Yes. Or some like rich um, uh, royalty somewhere who needs to invest funds in something. Just say, here's a hundred million dollars and go make your five movies. <laughs> yeah. Five movies. Yeah. It's a package deal. I'll make them for 20 million a piece. I can totally do it. You know, it just, it just has to be not with, with technology today. What do they got to lose? It goes to, it goes to streaming and they make their money. The back. thing is, it sounds like you still have that filmmaking bug that if the opportunity presented itself, you would go after it. I would. I, I stopped chasing it a while ago. Um, I, you know, I have one project right now that, a friend of mine and I wrote, it was a, it's a first venture into, into the horror films. And I think it's a really good script too. Uh, we just finished it last year and I had, a, I had some bites on it and I'm not quite sure where it stands right now, but that's one that I would like to kind of make as well. Have you ever been tempted to like pick up a camera and like get friends together and go do something like Koichi did? No, <laughs> you're shaking your head no. No, because the film is a very collaborative process. And I've done that for friends before, you know, I, I literally have gotten calls from friends shootings like these ultra low budget films. And I say, hey, my director skipped town. He's got to offer a real job. My director? Yeah, literally, this happened. And uh, I need somebody to come in here. I have like eight pages of this scene, you know. Uh, one, of, one of the actors was um, Adrian Zmed. He was in TJ Hooker. And he, he literally called me up like day before and says, can you come in, you know. I'm going to go shoot second unit action stuff, but can you come in and direct like all those? I have eight pages, like a scene, you know? And I'm like, okay, sure. I show up next day and I'm working with Adrian's men and we shoot all the stuff, you know? And it's like, literally, it was me, one cameraman, one assistant, and that's it. And so we had to light it all ourselves, lay the tracks. And I'm like, literally, I'm pushing the dolly with my hands on the camera as I'm doing it. You know, it's like super, super like garage budget, 
and uh, and building the sets that morning. <laughs> and so did you find that like an unsatisfying experience at the end of the day? It wasn't that it was unsatisfying. By the time I got it done, they really liked the footage I shot because I, I injected a lot of style to it. I made it very kind of cartoony, you know, and did some really kind of fun stuff with the scenes and, and just made it pop a little bit more artistically. And uh, Adrian's man was great. He was really fun to work with. Do you remember what the name of that movie was? Yeah, it was called Shira the Vampire something. The woman that plays Shira, she was a friend of mine and this was her film that she financed out of her own pocket. So it was kind of like, you know, helping them out. So they saw the footage and they really loved it. And they and, and they asked me, hey, can you come and just direct the rest of the movie? And I just said, I, I can't. And I said, it's nothing personal. But, you know, for me, like, here's my here's my feeling is that I literally was talking about this with my wife last night. We were walking our dog. She says, why don't you just grab a camera and start shooting stuff again? And I said, it doesn't work like that for me. It's like, if I want to make something, I want a professional crew and I want a DP and I want, you know, a good set. I want good actors. I want to make something that at the end of the day, looks like something professional and is good. You know, if I just grab a camera and shoot it, it's going to look cheap. You know, I can't just grab my neighbor and go, hey, you're an actor now. <laughs> you, know? I, you know what? I'm a big fan of those movies. So those kind of movies. I am when they're not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that Koichi did that with um, his movie, which is shot on like the cheapest mini DV, like in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, but he was in, he was fresh out of college and he was shooting stuff. You know, I mean, I did, I did, the Kung Fu Rascals was done like that too. Yeah, so you're like, I've already done that. Like I've moved past that. Right, but at some point it's like, I know that I'm a better director than that. And if I start to shoot something when not all the cards are in my favor, you know, and I produce something that's kind of not watchable, that doesn't help my morale very much. I feel like, oh, I'm a failure again. I can't shoot anything good. I don't believe you could ever do anything that would be unwatchable at the end of the day. Oh, oh, you'd be surprised. Well, I look forward to whatever you do next when it comes, you know, across your way, whether it be show running another show or directing a movie. Yeah, I don't don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I don't have much faith that anything's going to happen at this point out. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I may have already thrown in the towel, but, you know, I I, I do try to push to get things made, but, you know, I had so many disappointments and it's, and my story is not unique. I mean, every director goes through this in Hollywood. I mean, just the difference is that the movies that you've made are like, these are great. That I posted a clip of Guyver 2 on Twitter and 2,500 likes. And people are like, yeah, Steve Wang, he understood this property and he adapted it in a way that people don't even do anymore today. When, you know, manga and stuff like that is respected. Back when you made Guyver 2, like you were already on the ball. Well, I mean, I'm very passionate about what I do. You know, I do take my work very seriously. And... You know, I, I feel like, ironically, when I was making Drive, Mark Costco's wife was there with us at 3 a.m. every morning, hanging out. And, you know, and I hadn't slept in days already, and I'm just shooting. And she kept looking at me, and I finally got kind of weirded out. And I went up to her, and I said, hey, is everything okay? You know, you make sure you're all right. She says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to keep staring at you. And I said, well, what's up? She says, well, I just can't help but to notice that, you know, you've been here for days and days and days, and you haven't slept. And you always have a smile on your face. And I said, you know what? Because it's a privilege to be here right now. I said, it doesn't matter how little sleep I'm getting. I said, this could be the very last film I ever make. And I want to enjoy every minute of it. And it's so far is the the last film I've ever made. So maybe I jinxed myself. (laughs) But you know what? For all the crap I went through, I, you know, that was an experience to remember. And I, and I. I respected it and I enjoyed it as much as I could. I love Drive. I will continue showing it to people any opportunity that I have. And thank you so much for doing this interview with me, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah.
I'd like to thank Steve once again for doing the interview with me. And for anyone that's interested in the films that we mentioned during the interview, Steve Wang's Kung Fu Rascals is currently not available on DVD or Blu-ray, but can be found in its entirety on YouTube. Giver 2, Dark Hero, was released by Warner Archive on DVD, and unfortunately still doesn't have a Blu-ray release yet. And Drive just recently got a remastered version on Blu-ray under the MVD Rewind label. And not only does it have the remastered 4K picture, it includes the lesser theatrical recut and all the special features that were included on the Hong Kong Legends DVD that was released in the UK. And it's a great set. An amazing making of featurette. One of the best commentary tracks I've ever heard, deleted scenes, the entire package, everything that you would want to know about that movie. And as we mentioned on the episode, the series Common Rider Dragon Knight is unfortunately unavailable anywhere. But if you go looking, it may be floating around on the interwebs. And while we didn't mention it in the episode, Steve does have a studio that has continued to do makeup effects on such things as the new Bill and Ted movie, and he also designs amazing busts and statues at his website, Elite Creature Collectibles, which I would highly recommend to check out, especially if you have some cash to spend on the most beautifully realized statues, which have included, and are unfortunately sold out now, such busts as the Giver from his film, Giver dark hero and some amazing looking ultramans so please go and follow him on instagram at steve wang creature creator 